0: Welcome to the Behavioral Groups Podcast. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We interview interesting people in order to unlock insights into behavioral science and how we can apply that to work and life. This week we got to talk with Anurag Vaish,
1: co founder of The Final Mile, one of the oldest behavioral science consultancies in the world, with offices based in Mumbai and Chicago. Anurag was in India when we talked to him back in December
0: of 2017. Our conversation was interesting. It covered topics from how the unconscious influences every aspect of our decisions, how organizations should do more testing of their ideas, uh, and the influence that Robert Cialdini had on Anurag and the creation of The Final Mile. My favorite part, Tim, was discussing some of the projects that The Final
1: Mile has done particularly the train safety project in Mumbai, which ultimately led to saving thousands of people's lives every year because they were able to use behavioral science to solve a systematic problem. That is the power that companies can have if they use good science, have great ideas, and a real focus on understanding what actually drives our behavior. We also delve into how human, how the human brain is lazy and the huge impact that environment and choice architecture have on our behaviors.
0: Yeah, this was a really fun interview. Um, there's a few moments of bad internet connection. Uh, there's a little bit of background noise and some jumble of words. We apologize for that. He was in India, and it was a, a long... Uh, doesn't commute. Yeah, 10,000 miles is a long way to go, even with the internet. Um, but if you're willing to put up with uh, just a couple of little glitches here and there, we're excited to share with you our con- our conversation with Anurag Vaish. So, get ready to groove. Anurag Vaish. Thank you so much for joining us on the Behavioral Groups podcast today. We're excited to have you as our first international guest, and uh, we're looking forward to talking about the Final Mile and your your journey and work in the world of behavioral sciences. So welcome.
1: All right. Thank you, Tim. Anurag, uh, first question that we have for you today. is: So Final Mile isn't a household name in the United States, but you guys are one of the oldest, if not the oldest, and largest behavioral consultancies in the world. Tell us a little bit about Final Mile and tell us about what you do there.
2: Sure. Um, So Tim, thank you for having me. Um, And this is also my first international podcast. I feel very privileged. Um, And thank you for thinking about us, right? So uh, to get to your question, right? Um, Yes, we are not a household name, uh, uh, but also I realize that there aren't many companies in behavioral science that are household names in the U.S., right? <laughs> True. As a, True. As a category, we've been, you know, pretty small. Uh, but, you know, I have this, uh, you know, a feeling of shame that, you know, uh, having started in 2008 and now we are in 2017, it's almost 10 years that we've been working this field. And, uh, you know, this the, the application of the science is not yet, uh, as popular in the corporate world as we would like it to be, right? Um, but the company overall, right, uh, we started in 2008, uh, much before, you know, much before even, you know, books like Predictably Rational" or Nudge came into being, right? So very, very early starters, uh, you know, mostly kind of influenced by the book, influenced by Cialdini, right? Uh, it's been a massive influence on us, in fact. When the four of us partners met for the first time, uh, thinking about starting something like this, uh, we were all kind of, you know, zeroed into the same thing that there is this book called Influence, and it seems to suggest that there is a, a very different route to kind of understanding and influencing human behavior, uh, and something that you know we've been kind of up to for the last ten years. Uh, me, you know, personally, I'm I'm one of the founders. And, uh, you know, my interest um, right from the very beginning has been on evolving new research capabilities to really do justice to the science, right? So, you know, the science kind of, you know, opens up a very new way of looking at human brain, right? Mm. And uh, sometimes, you know, some of the books we read and some of the popular articles we read Uh, To my mind can be misleading in terms of how easy it might be to influence human behavior, right? So you read an article, you think of a principle, you start to apply it, and you believe results will come. Uh, The fact of the matter is that these experiments themselves are finding difficult to be replicated in the lab itself. Forget about replicating it in real life experiences, right? And so... You know, we wanted to go back to the basic principles, right? Saying, you know, what the science says is that there is a non-conscious human brain that heavily influences our decision-making, right? So we need a research tool that is able to explore the non-conscious brain and understand how decision-making is happening. So first up, start with research tools, right? Then think differently about strategy, right? I mean... The reason to believe kind of strategies don't exist anymore because consumer behavior himself is in ways not known to the consumer himself, right? So yeah, uh, rather than kind of banking on awareness, think more of emotions, think more of heuristics, think more of the immediate context and the situationality of the of the decision making, right? And, and then design, right? And um, that's the point I was making in the conference uh, a few weeks back that. Ultimately, right, rather than believing that we can change our behavior by being aware of what is right and wrong, we need to really design our environments in a way in which our behaviors get influenced, because motivation, to my mind, is highly overrated as, as, a, as a as a way of kind of changing our own behaviors, right? Yes. So that's been the way we've been working.
1: Well, thank you, Anurag. So uh, as you mentioned, we met a uh, few weeks ago uh, in San Francisco at the Behavioral Science and Marketing Summit. Um, you mentioned Influence as one of the books that uh, really influenced you. There's, yeah, well, there a, nice, you go, there's yeah. a good uh, component. And, and, and Cialdini spoke at the, the Behavioral Science and Marketing Conference. Was that your first time meeting him or have you met him in the past?
2: oh that was the first time so it was a privilege kind of meeting someone who influenced my life so massively
1: <laughs> yeah i thought the same thing he was a big influence on on a lot of the work that that tim and i have done and so i thought it was a really neat opportunity in the in the small setting that we had to to do that so that's always fun i did want to follow up just one other thing too on that honor so you talked about um that component of reading something in a book and then people thinking, wow, this is really cool. Now let's go apply that principle in in real life. And the fact of the matter is, is it's hard enough to replicate a lot of those studies in the lab. And sometimes it's almost next to impossible to replicate those findings in the real world. How do you go about then uh in the way that you use your process how do you go about making sure that the behavioral science principles that you're trying to apply are actually working what what is it that you guys do at final mile um in order to to make that happen
2: yeah interesting and absolutely um i think uh, just a point around cialdini's work right so yeah. you know i would say that you know it was massively influential in getting me into this space right uh, but the evolution from there is massive right i mean you look at his six principles they look you know profoundly universal you are tempted into applying those principles again and again to influence behavior right yeah uh, but i think the good thing we did was that we left it there saying that this is this is inspiring right mm. but this is not it this is not it. If you want to really kind of make behavioral science work, we need to expand this six principles massively. We need to find ways of researching consumer behavior. We need to bring emotions into play. This is something that I've been ranting about for ages, right? And I've written a few blogs around it, which is, you know, this whole idea of emotions, which is so powerful, in 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 determining our behaviors and guiding our decision making, yeah. is so underexplored in the behavioral economics community, right? And so, that to our mind was, uh, you know, a, a very very big part in 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 uh, determining our processes for for working the science, right? So, like you asked, right? So, what do we do, right? Really to kind of. Uh, under influence human behaviors. I think uh, the one thing we've very consciously done in our system is to not get, you know, get stuck by one kind of a learning, right? So, okay. to us, behavioral economics is just one component of behavioral sciences, right? Uh, evolutionary psychology, anthropology, uh, you know, there's so much in design space from affordance design so on and so forth, right? Uh, cognitive sciences, the understanding of memory, attention functions. Uh, we've kind of left ourselves open to being influenced by all of these, you know, work that's happening. So we are able to kind of keep our minds open about how to study and influence human behavior, right? Yeah. So that's one thing. Uh, and, and so, you know, because the space is so vast, rather than trying to find people who fit the science, we found people who are generally curious, people who are very good at what they do, and create an environment in the organization where people feel motivated to learn the science and then find ways of application, right? So the organization is full of people from design field, research field, some behavioral scientists as well. Uh, But in general, you will find more curious minds rather than... Uh, behavioral scientists, so to say that. So that's uh, the second part of how we work. And finally, I think our clients have been massively instrumental in leading us from one space to the other, right? Interesting anecdote, Uh, you know, the first project we did in safety came from Unilever, right? Ah. Uh, Yeah, I mean, We did some work for Unilever on, you know, the CPG kind of space in influencing shopper behavior. Yeah. I think our clients are able to see the potential of the science, right? So when you're talking to one of the heads of the organization in India, and he mentioned about, you know, employee safety on the road, and it opened our mind saying that, you know, behavioral sciences can be so influential in in informing uh, safety design, right? And ever since safety has become one of the very, very big domains for us, right? Uh, And so, you know, how clients led us, how we focused on learning and application, and how we developed our processes over time um, are probably the three fundamental pillars on which uh, we were building our, our, our practice.
1: Well, Anurag, there's two things I just want to comment on that, and then I'm going to throw it over to Tim for a question. But one, um, we are with you 100% on behavioral science and not getting locked into one method or various different things. And it has been part of our, I don't know, mission or yes. kind of, uh, you know, calling to to change the terminology from behavioral economics to behavioral science because Again, behavioral science, as you mentioned, encompasses all of these various different things. And I'm excited to hear you talk about your hiring curious people um, because behavioral groups, uh, the, the monthly meetup that Tim and I do is about bringing together curious minds. That's actually our tagline. Um, and and we are really thinking that that is a key component of, of what we're doing is bringing together those curious minds doesn't matter if it's behavioral economics, if it's uh, anthropology, if it's consumer behavior you know, you know, or traditional economics. It's about understanding the why and how people change and what they do. So thank you yeah. for that. And I'm going to throw it over
0: to Tim because he has a question. He's been I've been talking <laughs> too much. <laughs> <On a rock. laughs> you mentioned process early on. You said that there's no magic. in in the science itself, but that your focus is on process. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to the sort of process that you utilize and why is it so important? Yeah,
2: I think a great question, right? Um, And if you remember, right, even Sialdin in the conference mentioned about the need to kind of suit a a solution to a context, right? Uh, Yeah. To my mind, you know, uh, the science teaches us something fundamental about human behavior, right? It tells us about the role that heuristics play in influencing our behaviors in times of uncertainty and risk. It tells us about the role that emotions have to play in determining our action tendencies. It tells us about the importance of context, right? So, you know, this, this very context of us kind of meeting online is a very different context than meeting face to face, right? And it influences our behaviors, our talk and everything else, right? Right. So if you have to account for all of these three things, what you really need is a a process-based investigation of a particular context to determine what is kind of driving current preferences, right? And then allowing those insights to guide the strategy and the design development piece, right? And again, you know, whatever you might do in your research laboratories, in in your strategy groups, in developing a design, right? Ultimately, this design has to work in real world, right? And experiments are not the same as experience. So you have to kind of have this openness to designs failing in real environment and therefore have the ability to learn from those pilots and reiterate again and again till you get a design that really kind of solves the problem that you're kind of trying to address, right? So we, you know, because we believe so much in non-conscious, the first thing we did was to get rid of, you know, deliberation research kind of a thing, right? where you think. By asking a smart question, you'll get a good answer, right? So so we started to kind of look at digital games as a mechanism to understand consumer's preferences and then kind of moderating those games in multiple different ways to understand if preference reversals can be driven in in particular context or to application of particular behavioral science principle on an emotional derivative, right? Uh, So research process change Uh, We got clients to believe that, you know, it's worth investing six, eight weeks in developing a specific research tool for the problem and going out and meeting consumers, meeting your audience whose behavior you want to change, and then using all of that research to create a a strategy note that explains preferences, behaviors, actions, uh, and then kind of designing from there, right? Okay. And thus far, we have been pretty successful in selling uh, that process. And uh, and that's probably the re- reason why we have, you know, gotten a lot of success coming out of our work, right? Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't know if I'm not sounding humble enough. Uh, <laughs> but, you know.
1: There's no need to be humble if you're, uh, if you're being you know, successful and great. So, keep
0: yeah.
1: it together. Yeah. Anurag, um, quick quick question we met as, as we mentioned before at the behavioral science and marketing conference what what drew you so Tim and I you know we, we saw we probably signed up a couple weeks in advance we were we were some late comers there and we were interested just because of uh, some of the speakers that were there but just also that topic of behavioral science and how it's being used um, in, in the consumer world, we focus mostly in on how, how behavioral science gets used in on uh, inside organizations internally. But what was it that drew you to that behavioral science con- uh, conference? And, and what did you think of the overall conference? Uh, I know you spoke at it, so maybe that's what drew you there. But tell us a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, uh, so the backstory story is, to do with Om Marwa, right? So yeah. well, I think when Om graduated or did his master's in distance sciences, um, he has been in touch with us since then, right? Trying to shape his career into this whole behavioral science space. And, you know, I've been part of, uh, you know, I've helped him, mentored him, in fact, into developing his Walmart labs, right? So we know him from the past. And when we heard about his initiative of creating a behavioral science, you know, kind of a conference last year, in fact, was the first one. This was the second one. Uh, we were excited about it, right? Because uh, typically there aren't too many, right? So it's not that yeah. we are flushed with options of behavioral science workshops. Yeah, and exactly. Conferences, right? uh, so
1: just for our listeners, Om Marwa is the global head of behavioral science at Walmart and Sam's club. And he is the, uh, individual who is pretty much put on the conference that we're talking about here. So I just wanted to set the stage for people who, who may not know of that, but he is a, uh, he's he's young um, and and has uh, has made some really interesting stuff. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that you were mentoring him and part of his
0: stuff. So, um, great. That is great. I, I also, I, I don't want to, to let this conversation go without um, teeing up The train safety study that you did—it was just fascinating Mm -hmm. what you shared at the at the conference about dealing with this uh, this very uh, tragic uh, issue um, where you know uh, people are crossing tracks um, you know with with, uh, and not paying attention and misjudging the uh, speed of the trains. Could you talk a little bit about um, about uh, that study and the results that that came from it?
2: Yeah, I mean. Incredibly proud of that piece of work, right? In fact, we did this in 2008, the first year of our existence, uh, and in many ways, uh, the railways case became uh, like a you know benchmark for us to kind of replicate on all our commercial projects as well.
1: Great. So, you
2: know, it's an unfortunate story of Bombay, right, where uh, ten people lot killed, get killed every day uh, oh. while trespassing tracks, right, uh, and it's been happening for ages, and a uh, lot of awareness-led communication, a lot of you know, uh, silly design has been, uh, you know, the effort to kind of change people's behavior. Um, and when we kind of started to work on it, you know, we suspected that there is something beyond uh, just overconfidence, beyond just carelessness, because it's not a it's not a stone that got pelted on you and got hurt by it, right? Right, it's a, it's a massive piece of train kind of coming at you, and then you know you're being hit by it. Uh, it it almost sounded incredible, right? But then the numbers don't lie, which is ten people getting killed every day, and and that's I think that's where the this idea of you know knowing what's happening to in it uh, is so massively important, right? So this whole idea of Level based principle that you know, uh, you know, large fast moving objects can look slower than what they do. Uh, it's been known to human beings for a while now, right? Yeah. Uh, but the problem is that we still design with awareness in mind, right? Saying now since we know this, let's tell people about it, and then they will change their behavior, right? And and, and what did you, and,
0: what interventions did you did you test, and uh, and what what came out of those tests?
2: Yeah. Um, so, you know. So one of the interventions we did was to design for that principle, right, saying, if people are not able to estimate speed of large objects correctly, then how do we get them to do it, right, rather than just making them aware of it? And so, you know, this famous yellow lines kind of a solution, which says that, you know, if you drew yellow lines near trespassing points, then rather than the brain judging the speed of the train by, the, by this big body moving towards them, they will start to, you know, judge the speed of trains by how fast these yellow lines disappear under the train, right? Okay. And and that seemed to work magic, uh, along with another, you know, solution we tested, uh, which was around, you know, uh, creating an emotion of fear at the trespassing point, right? So rather than showing false dead bodies and you all know, those caricatures. And we as human beings are really poor at, you know, even seeing our own death in our own dreams, right? Forget about kind of believing those posters that appear. We created this picture where, you know, where the theater artist who kind of enacted a picture of, you know, the fear on his face when he's about to be hit by the train, right? Rather than a picture of a dead body, right? Right. And we believe that both of those together kind of delivered such uh, you know, fantastic results that you know, uh, there were like about 70% decline in deaths in places where these uh, solutions were implemented, right? Um,
1: that and, that you is know, amazing.
0: Yeah, it, to save people's lives is remarkable.
1: And using, using behavioral science and, and that, and again, just to, to reiterate, maybe try to paint the picture. So when you guys came in, you were studying the reasons why, you looked at this and, and ran, obviously, some different experiments, but one of them is put just painting yellow lines that are spaced apart actually on the railroad tracks themselves, across the railroad tracks. So when those trains are coming, they're not looking at the train, which, again, as you've mentioned, we have a hard time judging the speed of large objects, but you're looking at how fast that train is passing over those yellow lines and we can our visual, you know, capability and processing allows that to then be much better along with the emotional posters that were hung up around there. Um, not necessarily about death, but, uh, emotional fear. Uh, and, and we'll put in the links on the, on the webcast here or on the, on the podcast, excuse me, some links to that study. I know you have some stuff on your, on your website and you can see the posters. You can see the yellow lines. And so listeners, you guys can go out there and see that. That'll be in the, yeah. the show notes as we're going through here. So, so, um, so just to
2: add a point right over there before yeah. I finish this topic, you know, you know, what design does is, you know, design understands the human mind better than most strategists can, right? Yeah, so the fact cool. that, you know, that the human brain just has no ability to ignore any information in its environment, right? is the reason why yellow lines work because nobody is standing on those tracks trying to calculate speed of train right <laughs> nobody is trying to look for right. you know reference points right but it's just that our, our brain has not learned to ignore any information right? yes it's just that when it becomes important to us it kind of uses it otherwise it just kind of you know keeps it on the side right and so we believe that when these yellow lines you know, gave them a new piece of information to the brains, the brain processed it and adjusted its decision-making processes, right? Yeah. Without even knowing that did he see the yellow lines, he might, he might not even consciously know that he saw those yellow lines. Forget about knowing that it influences their behavior, right? Yeah. But your non-conscious brain is out of your conscious boundaries, that right? it doesn't behave uh, the way you want it to. It just behaves on its own, right?
1: Yeah. yeah well and, and, and you think about that in other contexts too right in Thaler's work on just choice architecture and having the default option and how you know the, our heuristic is we just accept that, that the default and so you want people to increase their um, organ donation you know sign up you have that yep. as the default yep. and people check out and there's a uh, a number of those factors, which again I think is what you're talking about is what you do is you you look at the 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 world through that that lens of saying, hey, how can we how do we actually influence these behaviors and and what is it about our human, the emotional side of us, the heuristic side of us, that we can actually apply some of these things not necessarily in a lab perspective, but in a real-world perspective that are gonna make a difference. And so with
2: Exactly, you know, so even even default, right? Uh, One has to understand why default works, right? Yeah. The default works because human brain is lazy. Yeah. (laughs) So given a chance to not make a decision, the human brain will not indulge, Yeah. So what default does is gives you, gives your brain a chance to avoid making decisions, right? Yeah. So if you understand that the human brain is lazy, why just default? It, you can create a hundred design pieces that works with the laziness of the human brain rather than push it into making effort to make decisions, right? And so while choice architecture, uh, you know, the way default works in choice architecture is one design of choice architecture, right? The simple right. principle of choice architecture though is how do we make decision making easy, right? Yes. And so, beyond default, we have experimented with, you know, tens of different choice architecture designs, and some of them have returned, you know, brilliant results because the principle of saving energy for the brain works. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. Could could you speak to uh, is is there another uh, case that uh, would highlight that, Anurag, uh, that you could uh, speak to for just a minute?
2: Oh yeah, you know, so. You know, we did this work for e-commerce sites, right? And it's a curious case that, you know, uh, e-commerce websites return a conversion rate of about one, two, three, four percent. right? I think South Korea uh, is an exception in the sense that it uh, conversion rates are about seven to eight percent. By conversion rate, I mean the number of people who come, come to the, you know, uh, These e-commerce websites to the number of people who really end up buying something over there, right? yeah And so, so one of the problems we faced was uh, that you know there's so much choice and so much information that it kind of works against decision making, right? So when you have when you have to kind of choose between two things, you're leaving one out and you're buying one. Versus when you have to choose between hundred things, you're leaving out ninety nine. Mm-hmm for one, right? So the dissonance is much more, the availability of information and the ability to explore information is almost infinite on a, on a web platform, right? right? So all of these things are working against decision-making uh, as against our belief that more information, more choices help better decision-making, right? And so one of the choice architectures we created over there uh, was informed by this theory around uh, decision field theory, right? I, I'm not sure if you've heard about it, but um, DFT is another choice architecture theory, right? So what it okay. says is that you know if I give you three choices, so that the the folklore is that when you have three choices, you typically compromise and choose the one in the middle in terms of price, quality, whatever else, right?
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, but that's not necessarily true, right? Uh, the the truth is that we choose the one that's easiest to decide upon, right? So, for instance, right, if I give you uh, a choice of three products in which two products are uh, exceptionally good at, uh, you know, um, quality, for instance, right? Right. And the third product uh, is far more efficient in terms of delivery time, right? Okay. Right, then it's difficult to decide between the first two products because they are very good at quality both of them, right? but suddenly you can change your attribute to something that comes home faster, gets delivered faster, right? So then you did not do a compromise, you chose one that's easier to decide between the three, the one that delivers the fastest, rather than trying to choose between two really good quality products, right? So how these attributes kind of come into play uh, in helping you make easier decisions is, is the, is the, you know, the fundamental theory in choice architecture. right? And so using dominance design, using similarity principles, using compromise principles, you can architect choice in ways in which you can drive people towards better choices uh, simply because how you played with attributes of it, right? Um, So does that make sense? Yeah, yeah.
1: It does, and it's it's an interesting component that you talk about in, in how we switch Switch our decision-making preferences on those attributes if one becomes more salient and easier um, in that three per, in that three-choice uh, scenario that you have there. So really interesting stuff. Do you see um, how are organizations applying behavioral science in their work? Um, how is it being adopted by them? From what you're seeing, is it becoming more prevalent? Is it a, been about the same in your experience? Help us understand what you're seeing from that client perspective in organizations and how they're taking this. Because I, I I would argue that the amount of uh, press and research that is out there. So one the the literature is getting larger, that there's more and more really good research out there on these behavioral science principles. And two, the press and the media coverage and just the general knowledge of this is becoming larger across the across the globe as well. What are you seeing uh in how these are being applied and and are there any unique ways that you're seeing it being applied within organizations?
2: Yeah, uh, I think uh, that's a fundamental question that we need to ask ourselves, right? Yeah. Uh, so you know, just a uh, just a quick point around it that you know I think the organizations currently are still in a choice stage, right? So they can decide whether they want to do behavioral sciences or not, right? Right. Uh, but my sense is that this choice is gonna extinguish very soon. Right? No, behavioral sciences is not a choice anymore, right? I mean, it's not about applying one principle or the other. You have to acknowledge the role of the non conscious brain. You have to acknowledge the role of emotions and heuristics, right? It's no more a matter of choice, right? I mean, I can see like in a couple of years' time, right, organizations will not have a choice of using behavioral sciences or not. They will have to. Okay. Now, within the space of people who are using it, right, there are I think two or three different kind of audiences over there. So one, which is still getting influenced by uh, the books and the papers that come out, right, are still kind of looking at magical things. So they have a very short-term perspective. They want to see some quick results, right? And, you know, it's something that we are not being able to address. uh, And so those kind of clients... Become, you know, they get excited and then they become latent after a little while. Right? There is another group of clients that I meet, and this is an increasing population, right? Who have had some bad experiences with behavioral science, right? Okay. And which is essentially, you know, because they were shortening the process, right? So they thought that an advisor could come and kind of, you know, without any research, without any strategy just <laughs> supply principles from one book or the other and results would be available to them right. right those are the kind of people those are the kind of clients we find great value in because they now are convinced that behavioral sciences works but not the process that they adopted right yeah okay. and they are happy to kind of you know take the long route to behavioral sciences you know i mean it's like advertising right i mean and it's only later that they realize that you know you need to do proposition testing, you need to do ad testing, pre-test, concept test, so on and so forth, right? Right. So that's the audience that I see is increasing. Yeah. But you know, um, I'm not, personally, I'm not a believer in the motivation route, right? I'm not a believer in the awareness route, right? Okay. Because I think most of the people who love behavioral sciences who see how it might be effective, need to start thinking beyond awareness, right? So, knowing that smoking is harmful is not a good enough reason to quit smoking,
1: right? Right.
2: And so, the more you think of designing environments, right, that influence your behavior, rather than, you know, creating narratives which is built on awareness and belief and motivation, I think the more success you will get, right?
1: Great. So focus yeah. on
2: designing environments that influence your behavior, rather than narratives that build conviction, belief, motivation. So in my mind, that's how we operate. And so that's what I can advise your you know, listeners.
1: That's excellent. That's excellent. Yeah, and and, and, I, and I think you can take that and apply it both in, in an individual's life, whether or not, like you said, you, you want to quit smoking or you want to lose weight. You know it's not being aware that smoking is bad or that being overweight is 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 bad for my health it is how do i design the environment that i live in do i do i have those cookies i I always use the the example of oreo cookies which i love i you know if they're in the house i'm going to eat them right um and so Number one, let's keep the Oreo cookies out of the house as much as possible, but if, you know, but I have kids and my kids like Oreo cookies and I don't want to necessarily deprive my kids of having <laughs> Oreo cookies. So what we do is we, we just keep the Oreo cookies down in the basement um, Yes. And, and not in the pantry. So when I come down and I'm like, open up the pantry and trying to, I'm hungry at three o'clock in the afternoon I don't see the Oreo cookies right there. I know they're in the basement, but that's a whole extra, you know, minute to just get Next and get the Oreo cookies and come back up and well, I'm, you know what? I'll just eat the, you know, the, the more healthy options that we have in there. So I, I, I love that fact of, you know, making sure you just can design that environment and, and definitely it applies in organization when you're looking at, um, either from that the consumer perspective or from that employee perspective. How do you design those environments in order to get people to do the right things? Um, last question Anurag, and thank you um, as we're going here. and hopefully you read this question because I don't want to throw you for a loop as we go here, but but we are gonna... but we but, but here you go too do bad. Uh, we are called behavioral grooves, and part of that is, is there's a musical kind of undertone to, to what we do. Tim is a, Tim is a uh, musician, uh, folk and Americana musician, and plays all around the Midwest. Um, and so as part of this, we ask all of our guests, you know, if you had a theme song that you've played, like when you came on with all of your clients, that theme song came on as you walked into the room, what would that theme song be for you?
2: <laughs> yeah, so I've been thinking about that question, and I, I <laughs> admit that I haven't found an answer. Right? Uh, so two things to it, right? One, I'm not very big into Western music, right? So okay, I I like listening to Indian music, Pakistani music, Sufi music, okay, like right? Bollywood a lot more, right? Right. And so my choice of English music is. Uh, you know, a very small set of artists and albums that I listen to, right? Well, what about uh, what about? I'm into
1: music. What about Indian music? Is there any? Is there any artist? Because I think one of the things that we'll do then too is we'll we'll uh, try to make a link to that artist or song in in the show notes, and it'll yeah. expand expand our listeners' uh, repertoire of of music. <laughs>
2: Yeah, that's a spanner now because I did not think in that line.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so now I'm really throwing you
1: up right there, making you think on your feet. Well, it's also very
2: contextual, right? I mean, ah, every day our music preferences change, right? Yes. And I'm going to a client to kind of convince, convince him of behavioral science so I'm probably thinking different music than when I'm trying to show him that a solution did not work or work, right? Okay. So uh, I... I I really don't know how to answer that question of yours, um, but I did listen to some of the songs that Tim, you've kind of recorded, and I think they're lovely, right? <laughs> I'd love to have some of them. <laughs> All right, <laughs> people, that wasn't so. a plant. We didn't do no. that on
0: purpose. Although, thank you, Anurag. Tim. Well, Tim appreciates well, it. that's very kind of you. Uh, let me ask you this: Are you are you a fan of of uh, more traditional ragas? And I think about sort of the work of uh, Ravi Shankar. Uh, and and, uh, and 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 sort of his his followers. Uh, do, you, do you like uh, the traditional uh, Indian music?
2: No, uh, more contemporary, right? So I think uh, some of the Sufi music that happens in and around you know Western India and in Pakistan is uh, is very you know soothing to me. Uh, so with the amount of travel and everything I do. Uh, these musics help me a lot. So not much into ragas. I'm, I'm not a connoisseur of music. It's just that I'm surrounded by music all the time.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, so. we, I think we all are. So. Yes, yes, truly. Uh, well, Anurag, thank you. Yes. We really appreciate you uh, joining us for this. We're uh, excited to uh, share this with, with everybody that listens. And uh, really, you guys are doing some great work. The, the work that you're doing on with the train that that has been around there. I mean, you're saving lives and I know you've done some other work with sanitation in India and a variety of other things. And so I think that you should be very proud of the work that you do. And uh, hopefully, you know, your, your name recognition uh, will just grow in the United States and and around the world. And you'll uh, you'll be able to take these principles and and apply them uh, across the globe. So, Thank you for that very much. Thank you, Anurag.
2: Thank you so much. It's it's a real pleasure to you know, be on this podcast and kind of talk to you. I think I enjoyed the conversation a lot because it is not the kind of conversation I have every day, right? So, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, but are, it kind of makes us think more fundamentally about these topics, right? And so yeah. really grateful thank you so much
1: yeah we are we are geeks about this stuff yes. and so what we love is talking with other people who enjoy this and we kind of geek out and, uh, you know the principles and foundations and the nuances of this and so thank you um, yeah. this is really fun Welcome to our grooving session, where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our behavioral grooves interview, have a free-flowing discussion on some of those topics, and whatever else comes into our crazy heads. So, Tim,
0: impressions from Anurag's talk. Well, I think you'd agree, Kurt, that Anurag's in, uh, intense focus on how the unconscious is present in every decision, that it's time we stopped this myth or stopped believing the myth that our decisions are, are always made in a conscious role. Uh, I thought that was that was great. That's a great theme to take away from this. And
1: if you think about that, it's behavioral economics at uh, its peak, right? Dan Ariely, predictably irrational, talking about yeah. the fact that we think we know what we're doing, um, but we don't always really understand
0: what are those underlying drives of what we and, and why we do things. Yeah, an Anurag's, uh, and Anurag's study and the work that he did with the Mumbai train stations— oh right i mean how how great is that that we think that of course just by posting a sign saying dangerous there are trains coming you know, don't don't walk out on the tracks that that ought to be enough we trains are huge they kill people they kill 10 or 12 people every day in mumbai yeah and the fact that when he looked at that and the company looked at
1: that the solution really was in understanding the dynamics of how our vision works and how people interpret that, and then the, the overall emotion that was based on that. And so the lines being painted in such a way that, hey, these large objects that are moving at incredible speeds actually look like they're traveling at incredible speeds, as opposed to large objects we're not very good at being able to judge their speed and then the emotion on the posters that he talked about. And so using those posters to really convey that emotion of what can happen when somebody actually gets hit by a train.
0: This this is a, a great part of Anurag's approach is that he's kind of like Switzerland. It, 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 it doesn't seem like he really cares about who's done the science or where the science mm-hmm. comes from, whether it's neuroscience or behavioral psychology or anthropological psychology. It doesn't matter. Whatever works to solve the solution, he brings in that expertise. And that's something that I think, if we all
1: approached the world with that kind of attitude, think how much better we would all be (laughs) going not just in business, but politics
0: and life in general. But. We digress. I, so. I just can't imagine. Okay, how about how about you, Kurt? <laughs> what, were, well, what what were some of the big takeaways for you, or what what really what really engaged you in a way as as uh, we were talking to Anurag, that um, that that you walked away with some really cool cool thoughts?
1: Well, I think one of the things that he talked about was just how the need to Bring in studies and replicate studies mm. uh, and not just go off of our gut feel and, and, and that there's a difference between experimentation and the real world. So experiments in a classroom are vastly different than experiments in the real world, and yet we have to do those experiments in the real world to see what really works. Mm-hmm.
0: So, and, and the experiments in, in the classroom to understand how to, how to better construct the, the experiments in the real world. Yeah, when and, we have the opportunity, right? And I think um, the quote that we have written down, or
1: I've written down, is "experiments are not the same as experience." And I think that's a really interesting piece. Yeah. And so yes, we need to do that that research. We need to understand it, um, and we need to understand it in the real world experience of life, as opposed to just in the classroom. And yes, the classroom can inform. But that doesn't necessarily mean it translates into the real world life.
0: Yeah. Well, again, in in Anurag's uh, sort of Switzerland approach, he's willing to say, we might have to bring a lot of disciplines together. And that's going to be difficult to replicate in a classroom or in an experiment. They're just going to have to try stuff in the real world. Well, and I think this goes back into some of the conversations
1: we've had at some of the Behavior Grooves meetups that we have, right? When you're doing an experiment, you're controlling for as many outside factors as possible to understand how one specific factor impacts somebody's behavior or thoughts. The real world, you you can't control for all of those outside factors. They are there. They're present. They are things that we have to take into consideration. So yes, that one piece in isolation might have a huge impact on some behavior. But taking in totality of everything else that's going on, does that get drowned out? I don't know. I mean, those are interesting questions, and I think that is the approach that he takes in looking at
0: it. So along those lines, Kurt, what did you think about his comment about how clients massively influence the practice? I think it's really important to have clients be involved. Um,
1: and I think from a couple different perspectives. I know in the work that I've done, if you come in as an outside expert and you come in without really getting the client involved or engaged in the work, the the input and the feedback that you provide to them is usually treated, in, at least in my view, kind of as, all right, here's the dissertation on the on the shelf, and we may or may not act on it. When you get clients involved, you get them thinking through what the experiment needs to be and how that experiment operates, you get their mindset in it. Not only does it help in the actual outcome because you get – the people who are dealing with these things day in and day out and probably have a much more rich and uh, you know detailed understanding of those. But you also get their, their insight and their buy-in that when it comes to implementation time that those solutions actually get implemented because, hey, I'm part of this. I've had a say in how this goes.
0: Yeah. It's also, it, it seems like an interesting collaboration to say, the clients massively influence the practice also says to me, you've got to you've got to be doing this in the real world with collaborators. Mm. You have to be working with other people. You can't just you can't just set up an experiment and just go and do it. It really it, it really is about actually having having real world people that it truly influences. I would love um, to set up an experiment and just do it, don't you? <laughs> uh, come on, isn't that the way this
1: works? And then and we we go from there. I... So One of the things that I also like, though, is our conversation, how it led into talking about how organizations are in denial of bringing behavioral science inside. And we've talked about this, that the consumer-facing side of behavioral science in organizations gets a lot more focus and attention than actually on the internal components And, and applying behavioral science insights Internally to organizations. You're
0: talking about especially like to employees. To employees, to organization
1: systems.
0: All of those factors
1: that go into not necessarily the the factor that faces the consumer, but it faces the internal organization. And that to me, I think, is one of those key areas of opportunity that organizations need to overcome uh, in order to really be effective.
0: There was one thing that I disagreed with just a little bit. Anur- oh, okay, Honorag was really big on um, on Cialdini's work, um, Robert Cialdini, the the author of Influence. You know, gr- classic. Yeah, it's a great it's a great book. Strongly recommend it to anyone if they haven't read Influence by Robert Cialdini. Anurag seemed to be saying motivation is is overworked in the world yes that that we shouldn't be paying attention to motivation because in fact I almost heard him say that it's uh it's not worth the time or energy that we always should be focused on is environment and creating these environments where decisions get made and I I I took issue with that in the work that I've done and I think in the work that you've done Kurt that we have seen motivation um gets uh you know, there are catalysts for motivation. There are, there, are, there are things that actually make motivation stronger or, or less Yeah. Uh, in, in the real world. And I,
1: not to take away from environment, because environment is very important. Absolutely. And we have talked about that. We've seen that. But there is a component about motivation. If you are not motivated to change, regardless of the environment that you're in, for the most part, you're not going to change. There isn't going to be that internal impetus for you to change that status quo of what you're doing in order to have some sort of outcome that you're trying to to align to or, or get. So, Tim. I'm gonna ask you this time, because <laughs> okay. you always you always spring this on me. What? Uh, what? 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 Musical <laughs> musical oh. ideas. Here we go. So, what have you been thinking about or listening to lately that you would like to share from the musical world of Tim Hulahan?
0: Uh. I like to promote local artists from Minneapolis because there are A, so many, and B, so many that are talented. In this case, I'm going to talk, I I want to recommend a uh, a uh, band that has kind of a Minneapolis connection, but actually got formed uh, at uh, at Berklee College of Music in okay. Boston, and then their name is Lake Street Dive, and their connection to Minneapolis is their name is well is the name because uh, because actually one of the one of the players came from came from Minneapolis, and so they named it after Lake Street in yes. Minneapolis, and they and they called it Lake Street Dive. So tell me about them. What what oh, kind of music gotta, do they play? What is the there. Four members, just lush harmonies. Uh, they're equally equally influenced by jazz and Motown as as much as they are just rock and roll. And it, like I said, it's it's lush harmonies. They're incredibly talented players. Uh, the guitarist also plays trumpet, and on some mm-hmm. tunes, he uh, he won't be playing guitar, or he'll he'll jump off the guitar to play a trumpet solo. And uh, I just, uh, that's a fresh, it's a, just a super fresh sound. So it just I, I love, really, really good stuff. I love musicians that do multiple instruments.
1: Yeah. Um, I, I mentioned before, I think uh, with you, Angus and Julia Stone yes, as one yeah. of the groups. And, and when we saw them in concert, it started off with, with Julia coming out and playing a trumpet. And yeah, then yeah. she went and then she's, you know, uh, one of the lead singers. She played the guitar. She played the bass. She played the piano um, wow. in one song. Uh, and again, you know, wow. that's that was their whole thing. And just pretty amazing in that. So very cool. OK. Lake Street Dive. Absolutely. You got to check them out. And you. All right. So I'm going different route this time. Um the the song that has been stuck in my head and my kids' head, and that they <laughs> ask me to play all of the time, is a. It's not even a real band. Um, so it's not even no. Nope, it is band? it is a it is a YouTube video from Bad Lip Reading, and it's called Seagulls. Stop it now. <laughs> okay. And they take clips from uh, Star Wars five, uh, with, with, uh, Luke and, um, and with, uh, Leia or Han or, <laughs> no. Why am I drawing a blank? um, no, the little green guy. Why am I drawing a blank on his Yoda. name? Yoda. Yoda. Yeah. Thank you. Oh my gosh. That was a brain fart people. Um, but they take this and they do these these things, and it's just hilarious. It is funny and hilarious, oh, okay. and a very catchy tune. So, seagulls, stop it now! Anyway, okay, right, seagulls. Okay, right, all right. Okay.
0: Yeah. All right. Yeah. That that's good. I will I will definitely check that out. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, time to wrap up this this round of the Behavioral Grooves podcast. Thank you all for listening, and we want to encourage you to subscribe. If you're you're not get uh, get your podcast at any of your favorite uh, podcast locations, whether it be iTunes or uh, come to uh, Podbean and uh, grab it right off of our site if you, if you so desire. Uh, Kurt, any closing words? No, just go out there, do
2: good, and uh, spread the word.